Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. We're broadcasting today from a rather overcast San Diego on April the 7th, 2011. I'm your host, Greg Masters, the publisher of ACOWatch.com and also known on Twitter as Two Health Guru. This is the 19th segment in our weekly series that informs the emerging accountable care organization industry. To say it has been a busy week for those of us following this nascent yet emerging ACO industry would be an exaggerated understatement. As most of you know, last Thursday, March the 31st, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released its highly anticipated yet long-delayed notice of proposed rule on the implementation of the ACO provisions in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, including several related agency releases specific to antitrust waivers, stark restrictions, etc. While a proposed rule with many of its key provisions forged via extensive engagement in um, extensive stakeholder engagement, the market sentiment, if you will, since its release is decidedly bearish. As uh, said on a prior broadcast, the rule is, quote, target rich for consumption, conversation, analysis, and advocacy, whether pro or con. Joining me today with perhaps uh, perhaps from the bearish camp is uh, noted healthcare analyst Cheryl Skolnick, Ph.D., Senior Vice President of CRT Capital Group, LLC, an institutional brokerage and investment bank based in Stamford, Connecticut. Dr. Skolnick recently published a report titled, quote, First Glance at Proposed Medicare ACO Rule, We Must Be Missing Something, which she's graciously consented to be republished on ACOWatch.com. Welcome to ACO Watch, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm pleased that you could join us today. I understand you're in New Jersey versus Connecticut. I am indeed. Sometimes the uh, information age works in one's favor and one can avoid a very long commute. Absolutely. So we're really happy that you're you're able to join us. So tell us a little bit, bit about you, CRT Capital Group, and your interest in and history with the healthcare vertical. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, let me just start with the firm. CRT Capital Group is a, uh, what I'll call a boutique um, institutional broker-dealer. Uh, we provide research, sales, and trading across the entire spectrum of a capital structure. So it's not just stocks, it's bonds, it's uh, bank debt, as well as uh, we um, deal in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, The firm has been around for about 20 years, and it is, as you mentioned, based in Stanford, Connecticut, um, and it is... um, a firm that allows us tremendous freedom to uh, bring what we believe as research analysts are the best investment ideas to our clients because we go across the entire capital structure. The My background in healthcare uh, began back in 1988 when in this industry, uh, on the, in the Wall Street industry, um, when I started covering healthcare services companies um, at a small regional brokerage firm in Washington, D.C., um, but prior to that, I actually uh, was an economist for the antitrust division of the Department of Justice and worked on several healthcare related issues, including uh, some mergers and acquisitions as well as some business reviews uh, that were uh, clearly directed towards the healthcare se- uh, sector. And one of the 
perhaps dubious claims to fame was that I uh, participated in an interagency task force with um, Health and Human Services trying to find a better way to compensate um, pharmacies for the provision of uh, prescription drugs and pharmacy services to the Medicaid program. And um, much to the distress of the industry, we actually came up with and designed the first capitated program for uh, Medicaid uh, reimbursement, which the industry uh, promptly um, and successfully defeated. Uh, it was um, it was a very interesting time. Uh, but since then, um, I have had while I've covered many other companies, I have covered the hospital industry, the um, health plan industry, uh, the entire spectrum of the continuum of care, as well as some other industries, and uh, have uh, been best known perhaps for my healthcare services coverage. So that is a uh, not so quick summary of a long career following the healthcare services industry. Well, we're in good company. Uh, I appreciate the, both the in the weeds as well as the global perspectives. I'm sure everyone else will as well. So let's uh, let me ask you this: I, I characterize you from the bearish camp. Is is that a fair assessment? With respect to the ACO rule, yes, it's absolutely yes. fair. Um, okay. You know, I I actually will tell you, I had a lot of more trouble reading this proposed rule than um, any of the many others of thousands of pages that I've read over a long 20-odd year career, in that as I was reading, I really could not believe that the regulations were saying what they appear to be saying, which is that um, providers who establish ACOs have all of the risks and none of the control over the patient that one would expect in this kind of a structure, and that the patient had none of the responsibility that one would also expect that perhaps they should for um, their choice of where they obtain their health care. And I really had trouble making the words on the page make sense as a result of that. But after uh, an extensive reading by both me and my very capable research associate, um, Nick Leventis, who deserves some no small credit for his work on this issue as well, we concluded that the appropriate stance to take was uh, we've got to be missing something because on the bo- at the bottom line, after reading these hundreds of pages of both the proposed rule for this as well as the, the one you mentioned, the antitrust and Stark um, commentary by the relevant agencies there, we could not understand why a rational group of providers would seek to form an ACO under these rules unless it was as a purely defensive mechanism against the acts of an irrational provider seeking to um, gain market share um, at the risk of profits and cash flows um, and form an ACO. So I think um, it's more than fair to put me in the bearish camp, and I think that this is yet one more example of missed and terribly wasted opportunity to fix problems that are real and um, long-term and um, distressing in the healthcare marketplace under PPACA. So so where where did uh, CMS and Berwick go wrong here? Didn't they have some uh, stakeholder consultations prior to the rule release? Yes, and what's interesting here is that the stakeholders who participated were, were not just the hospitals and perhaps on behalf of their employed physicians, but hospitals and physicians but also um, from the health plan community. And the 
concern here, I think, for some of us on Wall Street is that, you know, so where are the health plans in all of this? They had kind of indicated to us that they would be at the forefront of establishing ACOs, and they're specifically excluded. Um, but, you know, the stakeholders clearly made their points. Um, you know, it was very clear that the hospital industry had um, many points to make um, and that the health plan industry offered its services in managing health care costs and in constructing networks and were rebuffed. The bottom line here is um, that I think that as we look at this rule, there is very little of what the industries were advocating in those discussions that is evident in this rule. Now, you, you put the question in the context of where did the agency go wrong? And I, I think where it went wrong was not so much in their understanding of how healthcare works and how you achieve better outcomes at lower costs, but rather in their recognition of the political realities that have interfered in the, with the creation of a rational business model that appropriately compensates all participants for the risk. Okay, so what what is the paradigm bias here? Is it patient engagement? Is it collaboration, uh, shared governance? Is it uh, keeping hospital systems at the front here because they're the most likely institutional capital partner? Is it subordinating or discounting the health plans? What, what's, what, what's your read there? Yeah, no, I think the biggest issue here um, is the fact that this rule expressly prohibits the ACO from limiting patient choice in any way, shape, or form. And it comes down to this. You get what you pay for. If you want to control health care costs, you have to limit choice. If you don't want to limit choice, you're not going to get cost savings because there will be choices made that are not cost effective, whether they're made by physicians in their prescription writing habits or in their utilization of high-cost devices or they're made by patients in their choice of the location of their care and their choice of providers. And um, that's the political reality, I think, that interferes here, that in this kind of an environment, given where the administration is and given the concern, quite frankly, about whether or not the agency and administration would be accused of establishing death panels if they issued even one word or two about, gee, patient, you no longer have free choice under the ACO rule of where you can get your care. And then the second really egregious thing in this rule is bad enough that you know you have a patient and you know that you are at risk that that patient might choose to get a very expensive surgery done at a non-ACO hospital. Worse than even that is the fact that you have retrospective assignment of patients after the year is over to the ACO, meaning, and I'm sure your audience is aware of this, but just just to be specific, meaning that you could go through the year knowing that you have 5,000 patients, yet Mrs. Smith is not one of those 5,000 patients. And at the end of the year, because Mrs. Smith has received 90% of her care from a physician in the ACO, she's now assigned to the ACO. You didn't know you were responsible for her. And she may have gone out of network most of the time. And now all of a sudden you're making the ACO responsible for all of her health care costs 
And depending upon whether or not she's an outlier, whether or not Mrs. Smith is unfortunately very, very, very sick and a very high user of the services, that might be enough to kick your ben- your comparison versus benchmarks to an unacceptable level. That's a pretty so compelling. That's completely yeah. unacceptable yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a pretty compelling indictment. I'm actually wondering, as you mentioned, um, in the internal accounting and allocation of all this, if not, if there isn't some room for, uh, I don't know, sort of internal reinsurance or layering of risk such that there's some adjustment for the very scenario that you just described. But you know, I, I well, certainly you don't. Know, that- I, I think that that would require some actuarial models, and actuarial models require experience with um, such events. And I'm not aware of, at least I can't think of offhand, any other insurance model where you're responsible for a a risk and told about it after the fact, where you didn't get a chance to underwrite that risk and reserve, assess it and reserve for it at the beginning of the period, but you're mm-hmm. only told about it after the period. I can't imagine that any auto insurance company, for example, or any you know homeowners insurance company, would be amenable to that. I, I don't even know how they would begin to write the reinsurance for an open-ended, undefined risk that the sickest patients in the marketplace will be assigned to your ACO. Well, I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek. AIG assumed toxic debt for CDO, so maybe anything's possible. Well, and that's true. Um, I'm ascribing <laughs> rational behavior on the part right. of a lot of organizations right. here. But right. um, and and if you pay enough at the end of the day for you know for reinsurance, presumably there's there's somebody, be it AIG or an AIG-like entity, who would take on that risk, even though it's unmeasurable. So maybe given the political realities and and really almost this catch-22 that Obama et al. find themselves in, which were the pronouncements prior to health reform and the guarantees, Mm -hmm. if you will, maybe this is a three-year sort of window to facilitate this transition and maybe cross your fingers and hope that uh the 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 quid pro quo here which you outlined earlier that it has to be a controlled system or somewhat of a closed system for this to work maybe 3 years later it'll be different you know i suppose that's possible um you, you don't know and maybe over the course of the 3 years you get um and and I'm not making a political statement, but just rather making an observation here, maybe you do get a change of administration, maybe you get a change of control of of Congress, and the whole regulation goes away, and it's been a a moot point and, and, you know, moot discussion to begin with. Um, There is that potential. But, you know, barring that, I think the way I look at and the way some of the providers I've discussed this with with look at the ACO situation is, you know, you get a window to take a look at this by virtue of the fact that there is the two. Di- there are two different risk models that you can choose from. You know, whether you choose to share in the losses from the beginning of the three-year period or only for the last year and share only in the profits in the first two years and the losses in the last year in the second model. And you know, so. Some are looking at it as saying, well, gee, we have to evaluate this further, obviously, and we would like to see substantial changes in the proposed rule, but that might give us an opportunity to take a look at how this is going to um, 
work out, whether the concerns that I have raised, for example, about um, the retrospective um, assignment actually end up being as big a risk or material a risk as we think it might be. And so it gives them a free look in some sense or a not-so-free look, um, especially if they've gone down the path of physician employment um, where they might already be uh, the primary um, source of health care in the market anyway, or in some markets where there's limited competition. For example, the more rural markets where you might already be a sole community provider. So why not create an ACO? Um, but even so, um, I, I don't think that, in my experience, I have rarely seen, not never, but rarely seen situations where the rules get better as you go on. Okay, hear that. Um, so you mentioned here the intent is admirable and the motivation is probably right, but you then describe these uh, limitations and concerns and you raise this issue of moral hazard. Do you, do you want to yes. talk a little bit more about that? Right. A moral hazard is a, a term from my you know old days in graduate school in economics um, where, in essence, you create an obligation on an entity that has no control over the situation for which they are responsible, um, which is precisely what we we see here. And specifically, I would point to the retroactive assignment um, and the inability to control the location of care on the part of the patient to put any any limitations on patient access to care as the two moral hazard issues that I've I've identified. Now there may be more, and the problem with moral hazards is that um, you know it's as in any any employee who's been given a lot of responsibility with no authority to make any change knows these are untenable situations, um, and they oftentimes have unhappy outcomes. Um, you stress the system too much, it breaks. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, patient care, and I would hate to see the quality of care suffer because the ACOs are losing money hand over fist. That would be completely unacceptable and I think would defeat the purpose, quite obviously, of the intent of this regulation. Is there, If there was nothing other than just a sentinel effect here, that whereas we're really talking about the unmanaged Medicare fee-for-service program parts A and B, and all of a sudden, you know, layering over that a paradigm, a mindset of coordination, collaboration, downstream management of the major risks like readmissions and so forth, better triage on the front end, better chronic management during the life cycle of a particular uh, episode of illness, that just that will have salutary effect as to the utilization in the food chain and ultimately the claims experience inside sure. of Medicare. I mean, it, right. isn't that isn't that a thesis here? There is, and uh, I'll simplify it by saying, you know, what we like to say is, if you can measure it, you can manage it. So what you're doing here is, you know, you know you're holding people accountable for higher quality at a lower cost. Therefore, you're going to measure whether or not they achieve higher quality at a lower cost in what is today a completely unmanaged benefit. And they're just simply the act of measuring the higher quality and the lower cost and making an entity responsible for that should result in um, improving um, the and fixing part of what's broken with the healthcare system globally, not just the Medicare fee-for-service part of the healthcare system. And 
you know, you could certainly argue that that's the case. Um, but again, I, I would say that it will be of limited benefit. So a, a, the measurement effect can only go so far. And then after that, you really have to change behaviors in a more direct and potentially dramatic and difficult way. So we'll call that the low-hanging fruit of this. And to some extent, you're already accomplishing that with the paper for, excuse me, P for P, the pay for performance um, proposed regulations that came out of uh, CMS. Um, I don't know, last the end of last year, I think it was, um, and we're still waiting on the final rules there. Now, you know, that's that regulation isn't without its issues and flaws as well, but it was. Uh, of less concern because those things could be fixed um, and those issues could be addressed. Here, I'm I'm very worried that there there isn't a fix that's politically acceptable. Um, but having said that, um, you know you're already seeing um, certain of the the for-profit hospital systems with which I'm most familiar, and even several of the larger not-for-profit systems, understanding that irrespective of what happens with reform, and to this extent, reform is actually irrelevant. You have between the aging of the population into Medicare and the, and the the fact that you know you're going to have starvation in the land of plenty. You're going to have lots of old people and no money to pay for us um, as the baby boom ages into Medicare, and that's pretty apparent with what's happening in Congress, both under PPACA and in you know even back as far as the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, we realized this. But today it's upon us. The, I think the hospital management teams that get it understand that if you don't make money on your top five Medicare DRGs today, you're doomed in 10 years. And so you have to change the way you operate in a hospital. You must reduce length of stay. You have to focus on those physicians who are providing an outcome, which is not the highest outcome at the lowest cost, and help them with the help of their colleagues um, and the relevant, you know, um, sanctioned protocols, as it were, to pr- to practice better medicine, and the hospital itself has to be structured in such a way that it enables that. These companies, these entities, are already doing a lot of what PPACA would like to regulate them to get them to do. So you're already seeing some of that on some of the more forward-thinking um, hospital companies who understand where we're go- where we are today and where we're going. And if- well- and what I mean by just one thing, by if we, I, when I say reform is irrelevant, we have cuts. We have cuts in hospital reimbursements. We have cuts in health care reimbursements generally. We have taxes on medical devices. We have uh, cuts and taxes on health plans. Those cuts are here to stay. There is no way that those cuts, in my view, are going to disappear no matter what happens with the coverage provisions of reform. But the coverage is highly uncertain. So I think it's incumbent on every hospital, every health plan, every physician practice to assess their practices in the case that reform does not happen and to operate as if the coverage expansion will never happen. And in that sense, if you're taking the actions that are rational and sensible under a no-coverage scenario, then you'll be fine if coverage happens because then it's just upside. Wow, that, that's awesome. You, a lot of stuff you just put out there. First, I love this quote, starving in the age of plenty. I mean, what what, what a metaphor, what a sad metaphor for this industry at $3.2 trillion run rate, okay, annual run rate. So 
I wanted to go back. I totally agree that reform is irrelevant. These are market forces. They're in play. They are irrevocably leading towards integration. So either you use this rule, this guidance, to sort of figure out your local market strategy, or if you're a proprietary hospital system, your your, your local market strategies, um, you, you just the business as usual is not an option. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I agree so, completely. Yeah, so um, the, the other thing is, um, um, given the moral hazard thing and, and, and the limitations in this in this rule, are monopolies an option, and should they be, and if so, under what circumstances? How would you argue that? Okay, well, that's interesting because one of the other provisions of this rule is that if your market share is too big, you can't be an ACO. Well, it's kind of, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't, if you don't mind my saying so. Because one of the things that clearly would work to uh, address the issue of the risk that the patient goes out of network and you're responsible for a poor quality provider down the road um, is that if you are the only game in town, then there isn't a poor quality provider down the road and, and the patients don't have a choice, de facto don't have a choice, and so you might as well form an ACO. Okay except that if you're a monopolist, you can't form an ACO under these rules. Interesting. And you also, and and you remarked that maybe Kaiser might not be eligible? Well, they're a health plan. Health plans can't form ACOs. Okay. Well, okay. And in fact, fact, the legislation is very clear as to who could form an ACO, and health plans are not among them. So, you know, it's been interesting to hear Wall Street pontificate about, you know, my peers and I pontificate about, oh, you know, the health plans will be very well positioned because they're already case managers. They know how to manage this risk. They know how to build networks. The whole point of this is to create Medicare Advantage for the fee-for-service business without calling it Medicare Advantage and without involving the health plan. Thank you. So it's giving hospitals a chance to be, and, and physician practices and large group practices, by the way, also would be ideal you know, catalysts for or proponents of or hosts, as you will, leaders of ACOs. Um, but, you know, it's it's clearly the case that um, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, difficult for entities that are already vertically integrated um, to be ACOs, well, which I'm seems bizarre. I'm going to come back to another meltdown in algae. I don't know if it's totally appropriate or not, but if uh, Goldman Sachs can go to the Fed and become a bank holding company in 26 hours or less, then perhaps Kaiser can go to the CMS <laughs> and, and become, become a hospital company. <laughs> exactly. You, you know, stranger things have happened. Right. And uh, and there are some pretty well paid lawyers who um, uh, who find ways to work inside of. Uh, and again, this is a comment period for proposed rules, so who right. knows? You know, and and, okay. and the other thing to to just mention, you know, there are some clinic models out there that are already very highly integrated and and from the data that I've seen, very effective at changing behaviors so that patients um, do get better care at a lower cost, Um, and that providers get paid a reasonable reimbursement for the services that they provide in keeping us healthy. Um, And I wonder if those models even will qualify under these rules, because if any of the clinic models 
actually restrict patient choice, they're not qualified. When you say clinic models, uh, give me an example of what you're talking about. Um, So there's the Geisinger, the Mayo, um, Cleveland, um, and um, Carillion would be a few of them. Okay. Well, I, I can't imagine that they would be excluded without holy hell breaking out. It just it seems to me that you know, as as prior to the rule release, when anyone talked about ACO, I mean, the best in class consideration was always given to Kaiser, Mayo, Geisinger, you know, and and at all. So interesting. But you know, my understanding is that they run networks of facilities, and you get all of your care within the network. Certainly, you do at Kaiser, unless Kaiser contracts. You know, for example, if Kaiser doesn't have a hospital in a submarket in California, they may rent beds from the existing provider. They've done this, for example, in Orange County, before they had their own hospital there. Um, you know, but if you're a Kaiser member, you go to a Kaiser facility or an, or an entity that's contracted with Kaiser, mm-hmm. and you do things the Kaiser way. And your right. choice is to have is to purchase Kaiser or not purchase Kaiser. Okay, very interesting. So, um, can physicians lead this effort? Well, I think depending upon the structure in the individual market, certainly they can. I mean, if physicians are already well organized, for example, I'll go back to the large group practices for which Southern California is famous. Um, I would imagine that they would be ideally positioned um, to lead these practices uh, and to lead the ACOs. Uh, they're already licensed as Knox Keen entities, so they're effectively insurance companies. They're capitated. They know how to take and manage risk. Um, but again, you know, they may not want to because part of the, their gig, as it is, as it were, is that um, they have a network of providers to whom they refer their patients. Um, They want to make sure that they have the oversight of that. You know, the one place where this may work, though, even without the restrictions, formal restrictions on on patient choice, the one place where it may work actually is in California with these large group, multi-specialty group practices, simply because patients who age into Medicare are just so used to getting all of their health care from those large multi-specialty group practices that they wouldn't even think about going out of network. So if they were to layer the equivalent of a point of service on top of the more traditionally tightly controlled, uh, I guess, HMO type of trafficking, maybe if the 80-20 rule applies here, that wouldn't break the bank. Um. Maybe, but I would want to understand exactly whether or not the structure of the ACO and the regulations would even allow that. I mean, you could think about it that way, that you have an out-of-network option. But I'll tell you, you know, the experience that we've had as a healthcare economy with out-of-network options is that it takes HMOs and it makes them into indemnity insurance companies who have no control over their costs, and that's why we're in part we're, why we're where we are today with, you know, insurance companies who provide health coverage that we can't afford. Right. Because we want more choice, right, right. and we and that you have to pay for it. Yeah, I, I go back to the the movie with uh, Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, and 
they used the word HMO, and you heard all the booze in the theater, right? And then well, that's, mo- that's, why, that's <laughs> the part why we're why we are where we are. Right, right. That's and, exactly and, right. You know, and, I hate my HMO, and everybody's <laughs> cheering. Yeah, okay. Right. So what about the independent docs who may have perhaps earlier, say, circa the 1990s, um, were in IPAs? Are, are they in a position to form a, form a, an ACO, and, and can they do it alone, or do they need a management company or capital partner? Um, I think that the answer is they probably can't do it alone. That's the simple one. I think that they probably will need um, a partner, whether you know, depending upon what their structure is now, an IPA, an IPA is not the same as a as a formal multi-specialty large group practice, okay? And because it is a loose conglomeration and has been subject to antitrust restrictions on their behaviors, so that makes an IPA model a little, a lot weaker um, in terms of being having the infrastructure to actually set up, manage, direct, contract, do you know, do all of the things that would be necessary to even meet the, the certification to be an ACO. Um, on the other hand, you know, management companies presumably would have that expertise. Um, I'm not a big fan of the physician practice management model. Um, I'm not a big fan either of hospitals owning physician practices. Um, we've had that experience, been there, done that, wasn't good. I'm not sure that it's ever different this time, um, but there are lots of competitive reasons why hospitals find themselves having to acquire physicians. And again, I think one of the reasons why hospitals may, even accepting the irrationality of these rules, um, may form ACOs is, is specifically to, as a defensive measure to prevent the guy across town from getting all their ducks. Um, so I'm, I'm very concerned about that. But um, I think the physician practice management market probably will come back um, as if there are if there are enough changes to the rule to entice participation. Hmm. Um, so other than a been there, done that with the physician practice management companies, might there be a new and improved version? And if so, where would it come from? And might there be a role for health plans as utility company players, if you will, to provide the infrastructure? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Um, we became aware a couple of weeks ago, well, we became aware a couple of months ago that um, United Health Group, for example, um, was um, – engaged in discussions to combine or partner in some way with the large multi-specialty practices in Orange County. Um, and we keep coming back to California because, as you know, California is so different from the rest of the country and, and, quite frankly, so much more sophisticated in terms of managing risk and assigning risk to different players in the industry that I look to California as the risk-based model and the incubator, as it were, for the rest of us. And... Um, as it turns out, as I understand it, that they have um, fairly quietly entered into a management contract to manage one of the um, Orange County-based um, multi-specialty practices. Now, that's really an interesting situation because this is an, an entity, United is an entity that has avoided capitated arrangements like the plague over most of its history. But I think it is a very strong signal of the change that, um, very material change that United's strategic thought process has undergone 
um, as it thinks about reform. And I would argue that United is one of those entities, for better or for worse, and I know that they're very well hated by the provider community generally, and I understand why, but for better or for worse, United is one of those organizations that mm-hmm. is um, that is really focused on it's not it's not okay to whine about health reform. It is okay to try to fix the market on our own. And I have to give them credit for that. So, um, you know, I think that you're going to see health plan involvement in the provision of health care. I think you are going to see vertical integration. I think you're going to see changes in the way health plans contract with providers. Some of those changes will fix some of the problems that we have, um, you know, where incentives are created under these contracts to... Um, either build a health plan more because you can't build someone else or to, um, in, for example, in the way oncologists are compensated, to um, use the most expensive drug because that's how the physician gets compensated the most. And I think we'll fix some of those problems. But, you know, you got to start the changes someplace, and these are small things together. One hopes there will be enough of those kinds of changes to to fix the big ones. But for right now... Um, I think that it will be a more unique rather than a more common situation to see physician practice management entities um, be formed fast enough and be sophisticated enough to actually compete with the hospitals uh, in forming ACOs should those hospitals want to. Is there a simple answer to this question uh, or not? And that question is... should the should physicians who organize themselves pursue the model of hospital as commodity or hospital as partner? Do you have a, s- a simple answer to that one? I think they have to look at it as hospital as partner. And the the simple reason is because of the connectivity and data-driven nature of the way the market's evolving. And the physicians do not have the capital to do that. The hospitals do, and for once have the permission to do what needs to be done to arrange for that connectivity. And do you see where do you see the direct practice or concierge medicine movement here? Can that spoil the party, or is that just a blip on the radar screen? Well, um, I don't think it spoils the party because I think that. Um, you know, unless it's absolutely crucial to high, have high-income individuals in this pool. But um, I think that, you know, what it tells you is that folks are uh, on the provider side are tired of dealing with the health plan, um, seeking a better way to practice medicine, um, and patients are seeking a better way to um, get their medicine delivered to them. Um but I think that that's a very small sliver of the market. I really don't think that for the vast majority of those of us with insurance that concierge medicine is going to be the way we're going to get our care. It's a role. And, and I'll, I'll say this. You know, there's a very vibrant private insurance market in the U.K. Somewhere between 15 and 16% of the population, despite the NHS, has their own insurance. So even if we were to have a nationalized system, which, by the way, PPACA is not a nationalized healthcare system and wouldn't be even if it were fully implemented, um, then uh, we would probably likely still have, you know, some individuals who would seek a private insurance alternative. 
So I just want to make sure I heard you say that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act is not government-controlled health insurance. Government not government-controlled health care. It is regulation health, of the right, health care industry. Right, it right. absolutely is regulation of the health care industry. It is not nationalized right. health care. Right. Thank you for so clarifying. If it were nationalized health care, it would be a very mm-hmm. simple rule. As of January 1, 2014, everyone's covered by Medicare. Done. Right. That's government-provided health care. Oh, and by so, the way, your taxes go up. Right. And so is that within reach within three years if this fails? The next right. logical step? Um, considering what happened in the last elections, I don't think so. Well, how much is enough then on, on GDP? We're at 17 and change. Where does it need to be where all of a sudden it's, okay, you guys, out of the sandbox, we're taking over? I don't think we ever get there. I honestly don't think we ever get there. I I can't, maybe I'm sort of mired in the rhetoric coming out of the Republican-controlled House and the recent budget proposals for Medicare and Medicaid, but, you know, if that's our starting point, um, I think only an extreme reaction to that kind of proposed um, model for Medicare and Medicaid in the opposite direction would would get us there. I mean, you know, so in other words, try the Ryan plan first, and then when and and if that fails, go to something else. And then the something else might be a single-payer system, but I don't think we see a single-payer system in the next decade. Hmm, interesting. So, okay, we're coming up on about uh, four minutes remaining. I wanted to, um, I just fascinate. I think we could go on for, I could go on for, uh, you know, quite a bit. It's fascinating to me. Well, it's um, a broad topic, so there's lots yeah, of things to talk about. Absolutely. So, I wanted to come back just briefly to uh, particularly the proprietary hospital systems who have very much a quarterly earnings per share perspective. They're really not invested in their boardroom in sort of longitudinal strategy to restructure and reposition themselves for the for the longer haul here. Are they ill-suited in this environment? Whoa, to, uh, whoa, whoa. Um, I'm going to vehemently disagree with that. Good. I Let's think there it. has been a, such a material change in the major four, not all of them, but in selected ones of the major for-profit entities in terms of the way they are thinking about their business. I think you have some um, very um, far-sighted individuals in key strategic roles um, at organizations like Tenet Healthcare and, and others um, that have in, who have instituted um, game-changing initiatives to position these companies for the long run. Um, and I would um, call your attention to the Medicare Performance Initiative that Dr. Stephen Newman, who is the COO of uh, Tenet, with the su- entire support of the entire organization, has implemented in that in that organization, um, which is resulting in dramatic improvements in the outcome and consistency of outcome in the top five Medicare DRGs um, across all of their hospitals. And they're now moving to... Um, the next five DRGs, and along with that dramatic improvement in consistency and outcome for patients is also um, considerable and measurable cost savings already on an annual basis, um, totaling more than $30 million a year. 
Now, you know, you're talking about something on the order of 512,000 admissions um, per year across all of the ten at same store facilities. That's a non-trivial amount per admission. When you think about how hard it is to drive physician behavioral change, it's astounding. And um, they've taken it on doctor by doctor, hospital by hospital, and um, it's no small feat. So I would argue strenuously that, um, you know, the for-profits think a lot longer ahead than you might think. They're also building models to to enable themselves to take risk at the revenue line with health plans in um, perhaps more sophisticated and productive ways than they have in the past. So there's a lot going on um, that's much more um, longer-term focused than just on quarterly earnings. Excellent. Thank you for that update and education. I appreciate hearing about that. So kudos and shout-out for Tenet formerly known as National Medical Enterprises and American Medical International, the latter company which I had an extended uh, tenure with. So good to hear that. I want to thank my guest, uh, Cheryl Skolnick, Ph.D., Senior Vice President of CRT Capital Group, LLC of Stanford, Connecticut, for joining me today. Join me next week at our regular time at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Wednesday, April the 14th, for another installment in this journey of health system redesign. We'll continue to spotlight market movement, tend to track and recap sentiment during the comment period, and assess where we stand in this inflated expectations versus trough disillusionment cycle. Thanks again, everybody. Bye, all. See you next week.